Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders from throughout the sports event industry. This is Matt Traub, Managing Editor of Sports Travel, and our guest today is Nora White, Senior Sport Development Manager at Spikeball. But before we begin, first a word from our sponsor. Nothing brings people together like sports, and no place brings people together like the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. There, you'll find first-class facilities and an experienced planning team that will make your sports or esports event go off without a hitch. And when the games end is when the real play begins, because the beach is 60 miles of endless activities and entertainment for all ages. Your event belongs at the beach. Start planning at MyrtleBeachSports.com. And now, on to the conversation. Spike Ball is a beach and park game played with four people and described by some as a warped version of two-on-two volleyball, heavy on spikes, drop shots, trickery, and diving around. The sport, originally created in 1989 before its modern revival in 2008, has grown not just throughout the United States, but internationally. Nora White got hooked on the sport after seeing it while hanging out with her family and has made it into a career helping organize events of all shapes and sizes. She joins us on the podcast to discuss her involvement in the sport, describe what it's like for those who have never played the sport before, the demographics of their tournaments, its spread internationally, and what its growth plans are going forward. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Nora White, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. Easy question for you, hopefully, to start off. How did you get involved in spike ball in the first place? I'll give the long story short version. So in 2013, my brother got a spike ball set as a graduation gift. Um, we're a very like backyard games family. So everyone was trying it out. He then went off to college and was playing a bit more with his buddies there and decided he wanted to compete. At that point, like end of 2013, 2014, I live outside of Boston and the Harvard had a club and they hosted a lot of events. So him and his friends started going to those. And I was like, oh, you know, I'll just tag along. We're a very sports family. So I just went and hung out. And then shortly after that, we found out about the Spike Ball series. So the, the events run by like the Spike Ball, the company. And same thing, he wanted to go play. So took a road trip down to Lancaster, Pennsylvania uh, with my mom. And I was like, I'll come along. Why not? And at that point, people were playing in a tournament and also running the tournament. So our friend Corey Heck, which was one of the original players, was also running it. And I like events. I like math. I like that stuff. So I was like, oh, I'll help make the bracket, you know, just kind of jumped in. And then, you know, fast forward the next year and a half, two years, I was really the only person that wanted to run the tournaments, didn't want to play and run it, just wanted to run it. So I was flying all over different weekends um, for different groups running their tournaments. Um, then got on Spikeball's radar, became a regional tournament director, did a bunch of events in the East. And then in the fall of 2017, um, made a full-time job for myself running the whole Spikeball Tour Series and more. So thank my brother for that introduction. Then, yeah, built a job for myself. For the uninitiated, describe Spikeball and how it relates as a competitive sport. Is there a difference between that and round net? Yes, absolutely. Great question. So Spikeball is the brand. Spikeball is the game, the yellow and black thing you buy on the shelf at Dick's. Round net is the sport. I learned as well as, you know, everybody else in this community that you cannot trademark a sport. So if we wanted to continue 
keeping it as Spikeball as the sport name, which it was referred to in the beginning, we would lose the trademark on the actual product and the brand. So bounced around a couple of fun ideas in 2017, 2018, and the lawyers ultimately said, you need something boring that no one wants to copyright and trademark. So that's where Roundnet came in. It's a round net. So Spikeball is, yes, the brand and the manufacturer that makes the equipment for the sport of round net. So on my end, Spikeball is you know the event organizer and the main sponsor of round net tournaments. So it is the Spikeball round net tournament series. You know, all the local groups are referred to as a round net group. So round net is the sport and Spikeball is a manufacturer, just like basketball is the game and Wilson makes the basketballs. So over time, there'll be more of a of a difference to the person walking down the street. It's spike ball, whether which context you're talking about it in, but um, the sport is round net. What is a typical organized event look like? And how much time goes into preparing and executing each of your events? A lot, I guess, so the short answer, a lot. This year, we have within the spike ball tour series, we have 20 events throughout the US, Canada, and Europe. So it is a lot of logistics. All of those events culminate in a championship in the late fall. But the typical events themselves run all day Saturday, you know, nine to five. They start with a round robin pool play and then go into a single elimination bracket in the afternoon. Our tournaments are open to all ages and all skill levels. So you'll see somebody that's playing for the first time that's, you know, probably only ever played with a beer in their hand all the way up to the top players, the pros. So yeah, Saturdays, you know, competition all day. And Sunday um, for some events is a little showcase um, and just the semis and finals of that top division. Um, and in other events, it's a co-ed or a mixed tournament that day. So a whole starts all over again, round round pool play into a bracket play, but for uh, co-ed and mixed teams. What have you found in terms of demographics for those enjoy this who enjoy the sport? You mentioned that it's, you know, it really varies. Is it dependent upon kids or adults you know, of all ages, local residents, or do you have people who travel to all of your events? And do you get, do you consider yourself even like an indoor sport or an outdoor sport or a beach sport? You know, what's the versatility that you can bring to an area? It's changed a lot over time. So um, I had a phone call earlier today with the CVB and I was like, I think we finally got it right. We've changed a lot year to year, just trying to figure out what works best. So that used to be, you know, half the tournaments on the beach, half the tournaments on grass. As we've developed and have added more rules, they're harder to regulate on sand. Now the competitive side is really just grass and turf. You can play indoor. It's actually pretty a lot um, on sport court in Europe. Indoors, I just don't think it's not as prevalent in the US or really expensive for people to play, you know, on indoor turf and stuff like that. But yes, in the competitive scene, we consider, you know, grass or turf is the main playing surface. The demographic is mainly college-aged males. I'd say about that 18 to 26 range. The woman's scene is really, really growing, which is awesome. Their numbers are doubling and tripling. I think we had a woman's event at every tournament this year, which hasn't been the case before. The co-ed and mixed, I say co-ed and mixed because the U.S. calls it co-ed and Europe calls it mixed, but you know, there's 50 team mixed tournaments in Europe. So, you know, that's more girls than we had at the national championship a couple of years ago. It's, it's really kind of that, yeah, low, lower twenties age. Um, we do a lot of work in, with PE teachers and in schools. So hopefully as 
younger kids are more introduced. Um, some have been starting clubs at their high school or things like that. They have their whole curriculum. So we hope as it gets more introduced at a younger age, then it may become a mainstream sport for high schools. College has been huge. We have over 150 college clubs all over the U.S. That's really the main demographic there. Players will choose where they're going to college, whether or not there is around that club. They want to compete and they don't want to play soccer for the 12th year. They want to play around it with their friends. So that's been really uh, awesome to see. And then, you know, they play throughout college and then that translates to a couple years out. So it's, it's been great. Do you have a lot of people who travel to your events or do you, when you put on events, are you mostly getting the local people who have played or part of clubs and are just, Hey, I've got a tournament near town. Or do you have people who say, Hey, I, drove, you know, six hours and I'm staying in town for the weekend for this. Yes, absolutely. And I would say six hours is a short drive for them. Some of these people, they'll drive 14, 15, 16 overnight. It's crazy. The, our 1%, I'd say our top athletes on the men's and women's side are diehard players. They compete every single weekend all over the country, you know, traveling to Europe or Canada. These guys just want to play every weekend, everywhere. In our tournament series, you only have to play three. We only count your top three results, but they'll go to all 20, um, which is awesome. So so that top group travels all the time. And then yeah, it's probably about, you know, 70% local, you know, within a couple hours drive, but um, our top athletes travel most weekends as far as they have to by train, bus, plane, whatever, however they can get there. You're listening to the Sports Travel Podcast. And now a word from our sponsor. Nothing brings people together like sports and no place brings people together like the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. There you'll find first class facilities and an experienced planning team that will make sure your sports or esports event goes off without a hitch. And when the games end is when the real play begins, because the beach is 60 miles of endless activities and entertainment for all ages. Your event belongs at the beach. Start planning at MyrtleBeachSports.com. And now, back to the episode. I know that you were with us at Teams Europe on behalf of Spikeball. What is the sport's international interest and attraction for fans? I, I know you mentioned earlier that you have to, depending on what, where you put your tournament, it's either co-ed or mixed. I'd say that the European tournament scene is probably three or four years behind the U.S. So, um, you know, the, the tournaments that we were having, the size tournaments, you know, 2017, 2018 here, maybe there now. It's just really blown up in the past couple of years. Unfortunately, you know, just due to the logistics of the world, you know, shipping a spike ball set, if they buy it, you know, it's double or triple the price to somewhere in Europe or Brazil or all of these things. So it's been a lot harder for players that are interested to just get equipment. And so that's where they're a couple of years behind. But this was the first year we felt we had a really solid amount of players in Europe that would travel to tournaments. Um, the skill level has vastly improved. Um, we have a bunch of um, organizations like similar, basically NGBs, NGBs or like local city groups, over 20, I want to say throughout Europe that, you know, host events and they, they all had been doing that, you know, enough to be like, yep, there's a presence that we can go and bring a true spike ball event. So we had one in Paris and it had, you know, 150 teams sold out weeks before the tournament was supposed to happen, which over here, 
people are not that organized. It's crazy. Um, so we put, we put one in Paris, we put one in Ghent. And another big driver with Europe this fall is the world championship. So the first round at world championship was scheduled for 2020. We're finally getting it done in 2022. And that's run by the International Federation. So that's been established as well. Spike Ball's the title sponsor of that event. So helping out, you know, as much as we can there. Um, but that has over 30 countries that are signed up to attend. So really the organization of the sport in Europe has vastly grown. We, we forget, you know, here it's U.S. There, you know, it's like every single state has its own thing going on. Language, all like so many, so many more things happening, but Europe got it together and that's kind of the the next frontier. So we'll look to bring more events there next year from the spikeball side and just, you know, continue, continue to grow the sport. How difficult have you seen it in terms of launching events around a sport that many people may just be coming aware of? And how do you spread the word to different regions of the country, beyond the country and into Europe? I give a lot of credit to the marketing team. So luckily, because we are a product and a brand, have a large marketing team that comes out with you know, great clips and highlights. And we've been fortunate to be on ESPN, which has given us a lot of awareness as well. The main thing is really just explaining it, communicating it. We have an amazing community of players, like I said, that are just like, you know, willing and diehard to travel everywhere. Um, the biggest, you know, difficulty getting a new sport in is as a new sport, we don't have, you know, there's not a round net court after your local park, like there's a soccer field. So having to adapt to um, stuff that's already there, um, you know, we paint our own lines for our courts, which Luckily, um, I think technology's gotten better in in the paints. But you know, first couple of years, it was a hard no from any park, and we've been able to you know establish ourselves in a lot of good places. And then we reference them to something else. Of like, hey, this is what we come in and do. You know, don't be afraid of us. We're not going to ruin your facility. We can do this properly. So it's it's. I'm very fortunate for the couple of. Um, cities, Richmond, all throughout there was, has took a chance on us very early um, and brought us in. And then we've been able to show, you know, the success we've had there to other cities, but beyond, you know, just getting it to players has been all the marketing. There's a spike ball app to connect you with players near you, all the college clubs and, you know, just the awareness on college campuses and being a versatile sport and game. So as I said, we don't compete on sand, but you go to any beach on a sunny Saturday and spike ball sets are up and down the beach. So a lot of it has been um, marketing itself. Um, There's players that, you know, just play casually and they'll forever play in their backyard. And that's great. You know, when we have the 1% that want to travel to Belgium to compete for their country. So we really embrace all levels, you know, of activity. Are there any models or comparisons to other sports that have become established? And is there a long-term goal for spike ball that you see it developing into? The ultimate. We were very similar to ultimate in how we started. Um, our CEO, even in the beginning, you know, would send like spike ball sets as prizes to big ultimate tournaments. We found a lot of crossover in the type of people that compete in both. So we followed a lot of what ultimate did. Well, I've talked to them a couple of times and joked back and forth. They'll copy and paste something we use. I'll copy and paste something they use. So, you know, my whole college verification form is what USA Ultimate had. I'm like, it works for them. It works for me. So we did, we, we copied a lot of what they had going, the model that they'd kind of established. 
so lucky to to have that there. And I think a couple others um, like Quidditch and dodgeball, all of those are kind of in the, the similar boat as us now. So, you know, bounce ideas off each other and, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel for all of our sports. Long-term, well, I guess I'll go I'll, two, two parts. One, so Aspike will being a product and a brand, we always wanted it to be more than, you know, the backyard game you buy on the shelf, like I said earlier, from, you know, your dicks to your target. Um, it's always been the goal to create it into a sport. Um, you know, so the old mission statement was to create the next great American sport. Then it changed to the great next great global sport. Um, you know, we mixed it up a couple of times since then, but um, it's really been important to us to grow this into a sport. I think as for everybody in sport, the end goal is, goal is the Olympics. Um, so having the world championship this year is kind of the first step towards that, getting all the countries to um, organize with their national governing bodies, maybe hit the world games and other things like that. But to make the international, you know, federation help that get established, you know, have international rankings and to international rule set before Spikeball was the one making the rules for everybody playing. And that's not, you know, what we want long term. We want international federation, all the national governing bodies. So, yeah, Olympics at the end of the day, we'll see how, how far that gets. But until then, just growth in all of the countries, as many spots as we can. We have, you know, Asian countries, South American countries, Australia is coming to world. So just trying to spread the love of the game as you know far as we can. I want to take it back. You mentioned how you got involved in spike ball in the first place through your family and your brother. Grade yourself as a player. And what has been your mem- most memorable moment in sports, whether it's spike ball or another sport? Yeah, my, my brother and sister both competed. I never really did. I pay, played one kind of informal tournament once. That was like three hours. So I never wanted to compete. I don't know. I grew up playing sports. I played hockey and lacrosse, but I think I was just kind of washed up by the time I, I hit it. I hit this and I, I liked to win and I was not going to put in the time to win. So round net just was always a spectator sport for me. I'd say the one of the probably from that spectator side, you know, that best sports moments we had the last nationals or even just all the national championships in general, we have the most people out and watching. And, you know, again, I can, me and my boss are both sitting there, sitting back, there's 350 people watching, you know, live stream going, the top women's players, the top men's players, like seeing how much everyone is enjoying this sport and to be able to put on this event for them, just like gives me so much satisfaction. Player rating side, um, I'm probably... I'd say, I'm saying like, I'm a C. I watch enough that I can be good if I want to be, but I have to be carried. So if you give me a good partner, I could do decently well, but the serving game has gotten so good that I'd probably lose at that immediately. But if I played a little old school, I think I could could hang with a good partner. Well, well, hopefully you'll be able to find some good partners at tournaments around the country and around the world. And Nora White, thank you for joining us on the Sports Travel Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Matt Trow for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.